HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns Radio, and today I'm interviewing Kelly Moldy from Colorado, and he's out on a cattle drive. Where are you, Kelly? Um, I'm in the San Luis Valley, just north of Alamosa. Oh, wow. And tell us what the weather's like. It's probably about 28 degrees, I'd say, and it's a, there's a few high clouds. It's a, it's a pretty nice day for this time of year, no wind. No wind. Yeah, the wind in that valley, I heard it blows. Yep, it does. So would you so mind describing just... a little bit your your job uh, as a consultant and uh, grazing and viticulture expert man, what this kind of a career is like for somebody who is, you know, continue to think in your mind about the audience of people who are thinking about jobs in farming? Maybe describe a little how you got there. Okay, my background was initially in um, in market farming as a kid, and I went to UC Santa Cruz Agroecology Program, and after that, I ended up working on ranches in Colorado, not too far from where I'm at. And then I went back to working on orchards and vineyards, and kind of went back and forth between livestock and horticulture for a while, and finally, when I was putting in a vineyard in Arizona, I realized that there's probably a good way to mesh these two interests, and I did that by creating a way to graze vineyards throughout the, uh, throughout the growing season of the vines. Sheep, will, sheep really love to eat grape vines, and so, but the problem is, is, especially in Mediterranean climates, and even in Arizona where I first got into viticulture, um, there's a, um, the, the growing season for the cover crop starts right when the, it really picks up right when the vines start to grow. And if we don't have a way to keep the sheep from grazing those vines, they'll, they'll eat them all up. So I just developed a simple 
deterrent system with electric wire, and that enabled me to graze um, all, throughout the year, basically. And tell us some of the advantages of, of running of running sheep under the vi- under the vines. Okay, so um, one of the things that I found from doing this now I have I've grazed for years just during the winter time when the when the vines were dormant. I got a little bit of benefit from just that. But by extending the grazing season, we um, we dramatically reduced water use. In fact, we reduced it by 90% compared to convention, um, conventional grape farming. And um, we, re- we, we reduced labor. We reduced fossil fuel use. We reduced um, uh, uh, compost and fertilizers. And so the total savings of that amounts to about $450 an acre per year. And then, if you are if you're if you're running a, a sheep flock as a as a as something to sell either the meat or the wool, or it could be milk as well, then there's additional economic benefits. And so we can get up almost close to about a thousand dollars of um, between savings and income per acre per year by increasing the grazing season. Holy smokes! So the the this is a thing that I I feel like we can't overemphasize because it's so under acknowledged in the in the mainstream how much animal impact creates a dynamic soil ecosystem and as a result increased profitability in farming. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you use that technology in other contexts? Okay, so the um, um, I'm actually doing that right now. We're we're, we're just now. Moving these cattle onto a field of sorghum Sudan, and so this is a this is an organic field. These are certified organic cattle, and what we're doing is we're grazing a, this cover crop during the non-growing season. And what they've done is they've cut down the Sudan grass, they've put it in windrows, and we'll we'll basically be strip grazing these cattle for probably about another uh, I would say I don't know it's a pretty good sized field maybe maybe 50 days or so. And so we'll keep the we'll keep the herd pretty tight, which will increase the the distribution of dung and urine. And what will happen then is these guys will probably come back in and and in May or so, maybe April, start plowing up in preparation for potatoes. And so what we've done is basically cycled all this all this nutrients on site instead of hauling the hay off. We're cycling it on site and uh, improving the soil fertility that way with both dung and urine. And urine is really um, when you when you talk about livestock, that's probably one of the most valuable things that comes out of them. We always focus on manure, but urine is actually more concentrated and more available. So anyway, we'll be grazing this area until all this all this windrowed cover crop is is is, uh, is digested through the animals, and then they'll be planting something else in there. The advantage to this is they don't have to haul the hay off. They don't have to hay it. So we're reducing again. We're reducing fossil use, and we're just taking advantage of something that. That you know, a hundred years ago would have been no big deal, but um, now that people have 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 changed the way they farm, and, and usually the first thing they do is get rid of animals. So we're just trying to combine animals back onto the landscape and get both the ecological and the economic doing that. And tell us about the the moment or the kind of logistics or the kind of approach that you take because, you, you know, you're, you're dealing with the economic reality 
um, of these farms, but there's also some kind of sociocultural barriers or information gaps or, like, sometimes people are doing things in a way that's losing the money and they're doing it over and over again, and, and but it's somehow hard to acknowledge that. How do you approach, how do you approach that problem? Um, the way I approach that is, is I work with people who are open to this idea because I've found that there's no reason to try and push people into something they don't want to do. So instead, I focus on those people who are interested in it, and uh, that's why <laughs> that's probably why I'm not making any money at this, <laughs> but um, personally anyway. But um, it is um, when you're working with people who are who, who have an interest in this. It's just a there's a complete world of difference, and then I think what you have, and, and you have to take that approach because then those people that the, the neighbors and, and people who are not perhaps that interested in it to start off with will see this in action. I think that's one of the things that's really critical is having working examples. We can talk all day about how great something is, but when you actually see something working and it's right in your neighborhood, then that that makes more sense than than, than trying to convince somebody for. Of, of anything, so I guess what I the approach I try and take is is to is to walk my talk and and demonstrate what works. And so you're saying not making super amounts of money. Where do you feel like there where there is a good livelihood to be made? Um, I know that the people who are doing biological control, meaning working with insect either um, planting inspectories and flower gardens to attract predator insects into vineyards um, or in other ways creating a deeper biological set of networks around an, an ecosystem that, that there's a lot of benefit to those scientific communities to working within the wine grape industry not necessarily because wine grapes are you know such an incredible source of food justice or you know even a majority land user in, in the world but that there are a lot of vineyards, and vineyards are a perennial system, a lot of investment going into them already. And vineyards, uh, you know, wine is a, a, a lucrative enough product that it justifies some investment and therefore could push forward kind of the agenda or the, um, as you say, case studies, the on-the-ground reality of great progress in agroecosystems. Is that a, is that a reason uh, is that reason enough to investigate um, to investigate vineyards or what what other reasons are there? Sure, and one of the initial reasons that I that I was attracted to, to viticulture, besides the fact that I got interested in wine, was that it was a um, it was a fairly progressive branch of agriculture um, and fairly open minded, and there was a um, there was some money being made, and so basically. I was able to get the wine, the, the vineyards and wineries that I was working with to support my my research, because this is not something that uh, that universities or or industry are all that interested in. Because as I mentioned, the the work that I'm doing is basically reducing reducing fertilizers, reducing herbicides, reducing fossil fuel. And if you pick up any magazine on farming nowadays, just about any magazine, those are the advertisers. So. The great thing about viticulture was they they were able to support my initial work in this, and I think there's going to be a little bit of a of, of a lag time until this really catches on. But uh, and and for some reason, uh, viticulture seems to have, have have gotten, I guess, a little bit uh, our, our grape growing, winemaking, uh, got pretty comfortable because there was such a great market. 
And it's actually when things don't go so great that, that the interest picks up for something like this. So, for instance, now, um, uh, well, this last year I spent two and a half months in Australia and New Zealand, and especially in Australia where they've had severe um, climate conditions and that have made that have made growing there pretty pretty difficult. The interest there is incredibly high, and the interest in this country is just now starting to, to build up a little bit. So, I, and that kind of goes back into that whole cultural um, thing that you were talking about, how we get set in our ways, and when 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 uh, when the environment makes things more difficult for us, we start paying attention, and either we need to adapt. Are go under. So what I've worked on is creating a way to to anticipate these uh, these changes that are occurring and and be ready for those both economically and biologically. I like that point about paying a little bit more attention. I feel like um, you know we've been talking a lot about using data around, of soil data and the um, amazing work that's been done by the USDA or by the um, S. Soil Conservation Service, which has become the NRCS, uh, this amazing data that we have about our agricultural soils and could be using better uh, even on the farms that we're running along organic principles or um, sustainable ranches that we really could be monitoring more and, and doing adaptive management on a kind of more intensive level and making use of this data. and. Then thinking about well, where did this you know where did the impetus come from to get this data and you know if we're going to start thinking about climate preparedness, how would we how would we start collecting information about where best to be locating our staple crop production and which where, which which crops are likely to thrive in which places or it might swap around a little bit and. You know, we clearly had a bad drought this past season and um, didn't have very much precipitation in the upper Midwest again this winter. So last time we got that nice data, it was because the soil blew away during the Dust Bowl and caused, you know, a national crisis. Uh, it'd be nice not to need a crisis in order to start thinking through uh, the information we're going to need to retool uh, or reconfigure our agricultural system here uh, because of wobbly climate. Uh, do you have any kind of general thoughts on how we might be shifting our practices um, to to mesh with, you know, the future we have to look forward to? Uh, the first thing I, th I think is to be realistic. Um, in, in general, I think people in alternative agriculture are paying attention. In the wine business, we've known about climate change for years, and because wines are so sensitive to the to the, to the climate and the weather, that um, we, we're seeing changes occur really rapidly. And the, the main indicator is, is that the alcohol level goes up in the, in the grapes. Um, and I've worked uh, soil scientist, kind of the, the the lead soil scientist in the world for wine grapes. Last time I saw him, I said, "Where's where's the where's the work now?" And he said, "It's it's in Canada." He said, "If people don't believe that there's climate change occurring, then I'm working in these areas that never could have grown grapes 20 years ago." So that change is occurring. We need to be realistic about it. And to my mind, we need to look at the principles that that we see in nature. And that's really all I'm trying to do is mimic nature. And so by increasing diversity, increasing complexity, then we're a lot more resilient in our agricultural systems and able to 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 change with um, 
with the, with the, with the climate. And so it really comes down to paying very close attention to what's going on with your crops and, and having a diversity so that you're able to withstand what you refer to as wobbles in the climate because uh, there's, there's nothing that's normal anymore, especially in, in the western United States where I'm working. So um, we need to have diversity and resilience in order to deal with that. And we need to be, we need to be paying really close attention. Sure enough. Uh, so for folks who are thinking about joining, um, joining the ranching tribe and coming from an agroecological perspective, do you want to just throw out some thoughts on how to start getting employed? It, it's obviously less straightforward information chain-wise getting into ranching than it is, say, becoming an intern on a vegetable operation that needs a lot of seasonal help. Um, could you just interpret a little bit how you approached uh, that early career part of, of ranch management? Okay. I was born and raised just outside of the city in West Texas, so I was, I was pretty much in a city kid, although we did have um, a couple acres and, and and stuff. So when I got interested in ranching, I was um, I, I actually heard about Alan Savian Center for Holistic Management. He ended up putting together a degree program, so I, I got involved in that degree program, but I realized pretty quickly that I needed a practical experience. So I, in, in the meantime, I'd, I'd come across some ranchers in southern Colorado where I was where I was living and working, and asked them if I could just do and and an internship, apprenticeship type thing with them, and they they agreed, and that has been a fantastic learning experience for me. Um, that was you know, years ago, and now the same operation actually runs a a pretty pretty sophisticated and serious apprenticeship program for people interested in going into ranching. Um, that would be one option, and you can find out information about that through say the Quivera the Quivera organization. We said in New Mexico, but the other thing too is to just uh, to just look around and find innovative ranchers and and don't limit your boundaries to to this country. There's people doing fantastic stuff in in Australia, in New Zealand, in in America, really all over the world. And if you're interested in those things, I mean, there's you got the computer as a great resource to find out what people are doing. And if you're really interested in something, um, you will you'll you'll Pursue those things until you find an opportunity, and that is uh, that's basically what I did during during the time that I was doing that. It was, it was probably uh, it was it was less structured than it is now, and uh, the 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 amount of work that people needed was was much greater. People were not that much interested in ranching at that time, but now I think there's a there's a, there's good interest, and um and and ranchers are, are for the most part pretty happy to find people that are willing to work and want to learn. So there you go. That's from Kelly Mulvey, who's on Cattle Drive in the San Juan Valley of Colorado, which is a super beautiful place. You can read all about that valley in a book called The Last Ranch, which is a kind of sociocultural look at ranching in uh, dry land land climates and uh, kind of what's going on there. Uh, any other last shout-outs or books that you've been reading uh, or would recommend to beginner, beginning-minded ranchers as they enter this sphere? Um, I think the, the first book I'd recommend reading is Holistic Management by Alan Savory and Jody Butterfield. And that's a, uh, that's a fantastic uh, 
look at how the ecosystem functions and and the role of, of utilizing livestock as a tool within that ecosystem. And uh, actually, it's a, a pretty extensive book. It goes into into things like um, like creating goals and and the, and evaluating the tools we use in ecosystem management. So it's, it's it's valuable regardless of whether you're going into into agriculture focused on plants or agriculture with animals or like myself if you're combining the two. So that would be the first book on my recommended reading list. Rockin'. So uh, thank you so much for joining today, and thank you all also who are listening for joining. Uh, this is it. This is the Greenhorns Radio, Radio for Young Farmers by Young Farmers. While I have you on the phone, I should make sure to mention that um, I'm speaking this weekend at Yale University with my friend C.J. Santel. He's a lovely man, uh, researcher down in Nashville, Tennessee. He's talking about the history of servitude in agriculture. I'm talking about uh, faith and community organizing and the Young Farmers Movement. The talk that we're giving is called So God Made a Farmer. It's on Saturday, the 23rd of February. Uh, then next weekend is... An important weekend, the National Farmers Union is having their meeting in Springfield, Massachusetts. It's a four-day-long national convention. It'd be great to have a big turnout of young farmers there. It'd also be wonderful for there to be more of us who are starting to think in terms of that national organization's work in advocating for the kinds of farming policy that is hospitable to new farmers. Uh, they are very welcome and o- welcoming and open. Uh, they're rooted in the populist movement of the upper Midwest. They're very strong in North Dakota and uh, other places that are further afield, but the New England Farmers Union is newly strong here. I think it was launched about five years ago in New England. So the New England states are kind of the next frontier, and, and I really encourage those of you who have a leadership bone in you to show up at that uh, National Farmers Union meeting and start tuning into that community and letting them know where you think they should be pointed. So that's that, and I've got no more time, and I thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.